I'm Phoebe. And I'm Yanvo. And welcome to Vined Glass, where we talk about all things wine. Today, we're going to be talking about a trip that Phoebe and I took to Champagne almost five years ago, which was the first wine trip that we actually did together. And we're going to talk about some of the producers that we visited and some of the people that we met and some of the wonderful things and and wonderful champagnes that we got to try while we were there. So Phoebe, how did we even choose to go to Champagne in the first place? (laughs) That is a great question. This was definitely a hedonist trip, if nothing else. And I think going into it, I had been working in the industry for about five years so far, had worked with some of these fantastic champagne houses and spent a good deal of time in France up until that point in my life, but for studying purposes. And I had never really delved into any of the wine producing regions, but several industry friends, especially (laughs) the Psalms, especially seem to be big proponents of visiting Champagne, right? Burgundy was, of course, always the penultimate goal of regions to visit, but people always said that Champagne was the most fun to visit. So I thought, all right, this will be, this is a great opportunity. I knew Yanmo would be up for a, a trip to Champagne. So we uh, put it together in, you know, I think it was a September timeframe. And Yonbo had taken a, a red eye from New York and I picked her up early the next morning and we went straight to the first champagne tasting. <laughs> oh my God. Do you know what? I actually remember that because it was literally a 10 a.m. tasting. Yes. And <laughs> this was my first wine trip ever. You know, I didn't work in the industry. It was my first trip with you. I knew it was going to be kind of a work trip for you, but I think that really set the tone for the long weekend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we did not waste any time. We had our days booked. And I think the great thing about what we got to do is that we visited such a variety of producers. So we went to some of the big, well-known houses who distribute all over the world. And then we went to a couple of much smaller mom and pop outfits. And, you know, I think when we talk about what is champagne and and what it means to people and its reference and its place in history, it has so many important roles. And, you know, I think, Yanbo, you'll have a very different experience and mindset of champagne, and certainly at the point, you know, five years ago versus what mine was. And for me, I, I definitely looked at it still as this celebratory beverage, right? Again, we had been working with enough producers who really wanted their champagne to be treated as not just a celebratory beverage, right? Because I think they know, A, they know that that pigeonholes themselves, and then B, it really is a beautiful beverage and can be consumed with food on its own. It doesn't necessarily have to be something that you're just popping for a, a birthday or something. So leaning more towards the application of champagne into other experiences, you know, learning how to pair it with food more properly, learning how to enjoy it not in a flute, right? The winemakers had been making a big deal about don't serve it in flutes because that overemphasizes the CO2 in the glass. You really want to be drinking this out of a a specialized champagne glass or a white wine glass. So I was really looking forward to seeing what else they directed us towards and seeing 
what else Champagne really meant to them because so many of these places were multi-generational families. But I mean, what was your mindset and what was your approach going into this? Well, first of all, I totally remember learning about the flutes versus white wine glasses on the trip. Yeah. And also learning that Champagne could really be it could be a wine that was paired with food during the meal. It didn't have to be just the thing that you have as an aperitif or the glass that you have a toast with, which I think is definitely how I had modeled champagne in my mind before, you know, like something that you have before dinner or as like you mentioned, as really a celebratory drink. But I had just no clue, not only how much variety there is in the region between all of the different producers and their styles, but what a great range in flavor profiles there can be too. Totally, totally. Yeah, I think that that is one reason that makes it so fun or such a fun region to visit because I think especially in the US, we're served a really particular type of champagne in the market, right? The Veuve Clicquot that's everywhere, the Moet Chandon that's everywhere, there's very much a broad market palette that is distributed in America. Meanwhile, there are so many different styles of champagne that are produced. So just to give everyone a, a quick overview of the region, so champagne is just east of Paris, kind of north central France, and it's easily reachable by, you know, I think I drove from the Paris airport and it took me two hours maybe. And then Yanbo, you took the train from Paris. And how long was your train ride? Oh, well, I have no clue anymore. But, <laughs> you know, I was there by 10 a.m. and I landed that morning. So it couldn't have taken that long. Right, right. I, I'm pretty sure it's, you know, an hour, something like that, depending on which high, if you get a high speed train or not. Mm -hmm. And so Hans is the main city, spelled R E I M S, but pronounced Hans. And that was where we centered ourselves on this trip. And as you look at the broader region of Champagne, We've been talking about these different styles, and the region of Champagne is largely known for producing three main grapes. Well, really two main grapes, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, and then a tertiary grape, Pinot Meunier, that is much less frequently used, but makes a great blending grape with some of these others. So each region will specialize in its own style. And I think getting to taste the Champagnes that are 100% Pinot Noir or 100% Chardonnay, are, that's one of my favorite experiences because it's hard for me to tell the nuances in a blended champagne, right? Which typically most champagnes, most non-vintage champagnes are a blend of Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, probably a little Pinot Meunier. And I just love the unique expression that you get from the monovarietal champagnes that are 100% Pinot Noir or Chardonnay. And I love the Blanc de Blancs that are 100% Chardonnay. Oh, actually, Phoebe, I think it would be super helpful maybe if you could just give everyone a rundown of the blended champagne that is really typically representative of many of the champagnes that we might drink regularly. But then like, what is the difference between that and a Blanc de Blanc or a Blanc de Noir? Maybe we go through that and then I'd love to talk a little bit about each of them. Yeah. Okay. Good point. So really quickly, just to give everyone a reference point, 
as I was just saying, most non-vintage champagnes. So the average bottle of Vaucliquot or Moet Chandon that you see in the market, which typically costs somewhere between $35 and $50, is typically a blend of these three grapes. And blending is great for a bunch of reasons because it allows the winemakers to produce a constant and a really not predictable, but a very contiguous product that is the same year after year. So if Chardonnay doesn't have a good vintage in 2018, but Pinot Noir has a wonderful vintage, then there are different ways that they can combine these grapes to create a product that is similar to what you had last time you drank this. And so they can deliver a constant experience to the consumer. And as we've learned, this is actually especially important in the U.S. The U.S. consumer really wants a consistent product. So blending means that winemakers can can obtain this experience. And conversely, you can make champagne that is 100% Chardonnay, which is called a Blanc de Blanc. So meaning white of whites, because the Chardonnay grape is white or you know white skinned, yellow skinned. And those champagnes will have a very different flavor profile than the blend or than the other less frequent, I'd say less distributed option, which is Blanc de Noir. So 100% Pinot Noir, that means white of blacks, black referring to the color of the Pinot Noir grape. And what's really difficult about making these monovarietal champagnes is that you are requiring a great vintage, you know, you're requiring a great harvest and really high quality grape. It requires more skill from the winemakers as well, because there's less, it's less forgiving. You can't blend it with another grape in order to reach a desired flavor profile. You can't add in some Pinot Noir if you want to improve the the depth or the fruity characteristics of the champagne. So really when everything, in order to get this flavor profile of champagne, you still have to go through two fermentations, right? So all of the wine gets vinified normally in the primary fermentation, just as any other wine does. But what makes champagne is that it goes through a secondary fermentation in which we create bubbles, CO2, which is trapped in the bottle. There are a few different ways to do this, but the method champenoise means that the bubbles are trapped in the bottle. And this is created when the yeast eats the sugars and produces CO2, alcohol, and heat. So this is the basic, a very basic rundown of what we have to go through in order to create champagne. Oh my God. Do you remember when we were there? One of the things that we also learned about was how the cork gets put in, I think after the second fermentation, or, you know, I don't remember exactly when it was, but I remember being so fascinated by that because I do think during the first fermentation, there's just like a normal cap on the bottle. And of course the cork has to go in and and all of this stuff. I don't know why that was so interesting, but I still remember being fascinated by that despite not remembering any of the details. Well, absolutely. I mean, really, I think people don't realize what a mechanically difficult process it can be, especially to make sparkling wine, because depending on which method you're using, you know, you have to follow a pretty specific set of rules, especially in a region like Champagne. A lot of these production laws are very closely monitored. They're set in stone by the region of Champagne. So 
these producers have to do things a very certain way. And when you have a bottle of champagne with an incredible amount of PSI, highly, highly pressurized, and you have to find a way to disgorge, so remove a level of lees or dead yeast from the bottle, and then refill the bottle so that it's not it's not a low level bottle, and then put a cork in on top of it. I mean, it's it's a much more complicated process than people realize, and <laughs> it's one of the many reasons that high prices are justified for champagne. <laughs> you have to imagine, like, who were the first people to figure out that process and what kind of trial and error must they have endured? Right? How many people died? How many- <laughs> <laughs> you know, the other thing that I thought was so interesting was, you know, I really was such an amateur when we went on this trip. Not only did I not know really about the blend of, you know, the three grape varietals that go into a champagne. But I was totally unaware that, you know, you could have champagne that was made from only Pinot Noir grapes. And I remember at the time thinking, oh my God, Pinot Noir, that's a red grape. He used to make red wine. But in fact, you know, just yesterday, actually, I had this fabulous bottle of grower champagne that was a Blanc de Noir, so only Pinot Noir grapes, made by a producer called Hugh Godney, who I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but a friend brought back some from a recent trip to Champagne, and it was just fabulous. I mean, I just, I really enjoyed on our trip and, and ever since trying all of these the Blanc de Blanc, especially the ones with a little bit of age, I think they take on this beautiful flavors with some age and also the Blanc de Noir, which I think are just a little bit less common and harder to find. Definitely. Definitely. I couldn't agree more. Honestly, I think the the aged Blanc de Blancs are some of my favorite things to drink. They develop so many layers and different characteristics that you would not get in a non-vintage champagne. And, you know, I think this leads us to an interesting overall topic of the difference between big, widely distributed labels and small producers known as grower champagnes, which means that they're producing under a certain number of bottles per year. And those are typically either, sometimes they're co-op structure, sometimes they're single family owned, and, you know, they've been doing it for sometimes six, 12 generations. And I think part of the shame of the different producer sizes is that there's obviously a reason why some of these houses have attained the notoriety and the fame and the renown that they have because they make a good product and they make a consistent product. And then they know how to market themselves properly, right? We can, again, I think like Vove is probably one of the most obvious names that we think of when we think of champagne and certainly in the US, right? I mean, their marketing is all over. It's very cleverly done in a lot of places and they have some great partnerships. But I think what this does is it creates an impression to the American consumer of this is what champagne is and these are the brands that I should be looking for. And that's great. You know, the bottle will deliver exactly the experience that you want and that you expect. But Mm. such a different experience when you find these small grower champagnes that may look like a risk when you're buying it because you don't know what it is. The name is unfamiliar. Sometimes it can be hard to tell whether the the price is worth the value that's in the bottle. You know, how do you know unless you taste it? Mm-hmm. But I usually find that 
it is so worth the risk, especially if you're buying from a more well-known bottle shop or something and have someone reputable that you can speak with and ask because it is such a completely different experience. And if you are someone who's trying to explore more about champagne and have, I'm such an experience driven person and I know you are too. And the only way that you can emphasize that and grow this breadth of, of taste experiences is by taking risks and finding things that are smaller and maybe less well-known. Well, speaking of that, do you have any producers that were really highlights from the trip? And maybe even, you know, ones that we didn't visit on the trip too. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the bigger houses that we visited was Duvalois. And we went there mostly because I had been working with the brand for the past couple of years in the U.S. And I loved their Blanc de Blanc and their Femme, which is their Tete de Cuvée vintage champagne. And there were a few things that I really loved about them, which was that they have one of the very few female winemakers in Champagne. They are one of the very few, right? Yeah. They're one of the very few female run Champagne houses. And then they cultivate all their own indigenous yeasts. So during primary and to a degree secondary fermentation, most places need to add yeast to the juice in order to jumpstart fermentation, right? If you don't have enough natural yeast in the air, then you won't start primary fermentation in which the yeasts consume the natural sugar that exists in the grape juice and then creates the alcohol, CO2, and heat. During primary mm-hmm. fermentation, the CO2 is released, so you're not, you don't end up with this bubbly characteristic. But they cultivate all their own yeasts on the property, which to me was really interesting because I think on one hand, in a concentrated area like Champagne, you have so many neighbors, right? There's so many producers in such a small region and everyone's doing a slight or using a slightly different growing method, right? Some might have organic vineyards and some might have biodynamic and some might be using the same pesticides that we probably should not be ingesting, right? So that can have a major effect on the overall health and yeast content in an environment, especially, you know, microclimate like Champagne and smaller regions within Champagne. So, you know, you sometimes need to add yeast regardless of how healthy your vineyards are. And being able to do this with your own yeasts to me, I mean, I think we're, we're getting a little bit cork dork nerdy here. And I know not everyone who's listening to this is going to be as excited about <laughs> as I am. But, <laughs> but trust me, it's very impressive. And it was, it was fascinating to see their cultivation in their cellar. So if and when you get wow. to go, give it a shot. I forgot that they cultivated their own yeast. And also, by the way, can you just explain what tete de cuvee means? Uh, Right, right. Yeah, good point. So tete de cuvee means, technically it means the head or the the best of the best, really. That's kind of, it's not an exact translation, but it's the loose translation of the intended meaning. And this is the the all-star of every producer. They create their tete de cuvee, which is their most special bottling. It's usually, you know, it's highest quality, highest price. It's meant to be the shining star of that production house. And it's usually a, you know, it's of course a vintage champagne. It may be something 
typically it's not produced every year. So they will wait for only the best vintages, only the best harvest years. For example, Duvalois had, you know, this was back in 2015-ish, and we were still selling some of their 2000 Tete Cuvée, that Femme bottle I was talking about, because that was when the 2000 vintage was determined to be ready. And you release this Tete Cuvée very specifically in, it's typically a decision led by the winemaker who says, okay, the 2000 vintage is ready now. It's, re- it's really at its best moment of development. You know, it typically means it can still be laid down to age for several years and f- if not decades after that. But it's a point at which they feel like they're putting forth the best representation of their house. Mm-hmm. There's so much agency and so much consideration that has to go into all of these decisions around when to release. It's really fascinating. Absolutely. And didn't she? You have to. You have to help me out here. But didn't she come in during our tasting at Duval Leroy? Yeah. Right. Exactly. So Carol Duvalois is the one who's running the um, the winery right now in conjunction with her sons. And yeah, so she came down and said hi during our tasting on site. I had worked with her in San Francisco for a few days the year before. And yeah, she's she's a fascinating lady. I mean, it's no small feat to be able to run a champagne house that size especially considering that wine in a lot of ways is still a very, very male dominated field. And in these really traditional regions in France, it's arguably less common than it is in somewhere like the US where our Mm -hmm. wine industry is much younger. So Mm -hmm. she definitely, you could tell she has some stories and she has obviously worked very hard to maintain the success that Duvalois has enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, to me, it was really neat to be able to see her in her element right there. Yes, Madame Duvalois. That was so cool because I remember hearing at the beginning of our tasting there, I think either, and maybe you shared a little bit about the history of the house and then, yeah, it was just so wonderful. It seemed like this serendipitous moment when she then walked in sort of unplanned. and um, Totally. totally. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that you really, or that for me anyway, that I've really gleaned from visiting these wine producing regions in France is, you know, in the U S I think there's oftentimes this perception of why do these regions in France have such a, you know, some people call it snobbiness or this kind of nose in the air attitude about about their production and how do they justify these crazy high prices, especially, again, in comparison to some of these U.S. producers who qualitatively produce just as good of a product, right? But going there and experiencing the – it feels a little overused to say passion, but it really is. I mean – to feel their passion and their just absolute dedication to what they're doing. I mean, a lot of these places, like we said, have been doing this for six, 12 generations and in the same family. And when you think of how difficult it is to maintain a business for even 10 years, right? I mean, we're in the middle of a global pandemic right now and we're seeing how many 
businesses are closing left and right. Imagine how many economic crises they have survived through and the experience and the like the credit that you amass during a, a lifespan like that as a business is it, it, for me, it was part of the reason why I left those regions with an entirely deeper level of reverence for these regions and these producers. Mm-hmm, totally. Well, I remember one of the smaller producers we went to, Pierre Payard, they were so interesting because for me, they were exactly what you just described. I think they were in the eighth generation of winemaking and we were walking into what felt like a family home. And I remember them showing us the press that they were using and some other methods that they were experimenting with. Like one was a clay amphora. And, you know, it felt very familial. It didn't feel, it was a very different vibe from some of the larger places that we went where there were tasting rooms and there were branded marketing materials and Absolutely. you know you could tell that it was more industrial i just i loved the visit to pierre payard and getting to see the caves and being walked around and we sort of just sat casually around a table and and tasted a few things and their champagnes were also wonderful i remember at the time i was living in new york and very fortunately Astra Wines carries them. And I remember being just so delighted when I found some of their their champagne there. Yeah, that was a really wonderful memory. Yeah, that's a great reference. I loved visiting that spot as well. And that was a recommendation that a friend who worked in the industry had set us up for, if you remember. And we, I remember the gentleman who hosted us was one of the, you know, of the family and also one of the winemakers and his hands were this permanent taint of purple and just <laughs> weather worn and calloused and cracked. And, you know, he was a young man. He was probably what, 35, 40. And his hands looked like they were 30 years older than he was. And I loved that because to me, it's such a, yeah, it's a badge of honor for a lot of these places that where the people do this for their entire lives and really proudly wear this mark of bodily sacrifice for their product. Mm-hmm, totally. Gosh. And do you know what else? I feel like your friend who hosted us at Duval de Roy and also introduced us to some of these small growers, he also had some fabulous recommendations for restaurants and champagne bars like that was so wonderful because I felt like we really got to try some of the local spots yes so true (laughs) and one of my favorites was yeah Pierre he's a wonderful guy and we went out to dinner one evening with him and a few of his friends if you remember I think it was at Alcou de Pou oh no no, I know what story you're going to tell? <laughs> and I think this was after our second full day of tasting, and you know we weren't having, we didn't have short days, right? We started pretty early in the morning, went all day. We're trying to maximize what was only a few days in Champagne, and at the end of a day, dinner there was typically nine 
p.m. or later. So we met up with this group for dinner at around nine, I believe. And and poor Yanpo, who had still been traveling for work recently, maybe, or I know you were working a lot at the time. So I know you were really short on sleep and we were sitting at this dinner table for hours going through so many different bottles of champagne and having an absolute blast. It was so much fun. And Yanbo was having so much fun and refused to say how tired she was that she started falling asleep at the table. And I was sleeping. Oh my God. <laughs> but the level of dedication this was so good but that's one thing I was like wow she refuses to express how exhausted she is she would rather not leave this dinner table and fall asleep at this dinner table than she would go home and sleep (laughs) respect Yanbo respect well I'm glad that you were impressed I'm not sure whether anyone else was (laughs) we left good impression I'm sure but, you know, that was a fabulous restaurant called Oku de Pool, which we should put into the show notes because the food there was so spectacular. And I remember before we went in for dinner, your friend Pierre had, I think maybe he knew the chef there or something. Right. Because we met in the kitchen right. with some of the other friends that were coming to dinner and he and his girlfriend were having a baby. And to celebrate, I think they had just found out they opened a magnum of Agapare Fils. And I don't remember which one it was, but that was the first time that I had Agapare Fils. And it was so wonderful. So wonderful. And they also used these really nice glasses that were, they. I don't know if you remember these glasses. They weren't like a tulip shape, like a smooth tulip shape. They had sort of this funny endant in them. Oh, mm-hmm. yes. But they were really nice. Yeah, agreed. I mean, yeah, A, there were so many fun things about that dinner and that whole evening. And and then <laughs> B, as a takeaway, I would definitely say it's worth investing in proper champagne glasses, not flutes. It really will open up the champagne for you in a completely different way. So definitely worth looking into. I mean, the Riedel produces plenty of them. I think Zalto makes some as well, right? Well, that's very funny you should say that because I was just looking at some Zalto classes in a shop here in London earlier today. And do you know what? The fellow that we work with at this shop, who's really, really wonderful, he was basically saying how, and it's true, I think when you look, the Zalto champagne glasses are quite small. And if you were to fill them about halfway, you wouldn't get very much. And and also it would be hard to you know, the wine doesn't have a lot of room because it's quite a narrow, small glass. And so he suggested trying the Zalto white wine glass for champagne. And actually, because the white wine glass is also quite small, he suggested if you want to have a white wine to use their universal wine glass. Oh, gotcha. Interesting. Have you done a comparison with them yet? Not yet. I've actually only done one comparison at your recommendation with the Zalto glasses. And honestly, I was a little bit skeptical, but oh my God, Phoebe, it was really like night and day. So we did a side-by-side tasting of a Pinot Noir in the Zalto Burgundy glass and in, I think, a, a Riedel glass. And it really was like night and day. 
you got a completely different bouquet on the nose. Mm-hmm. You got a completely different taste profile mm-hmm. on the palate. It was yeah. extraordinary. It really is. And I think that conversation merits its own episode, really, because I think when you first mm. hear someone talk about this, it's normal to be pretty skeptical, right? I mean, unless you are really well educated on physics of wine glasses, then, you know, why would you? <laughs> As one is. Of course, that was my minor. But, you know, you have that reference point. Of course, you would be skeptical. It's It doesn't seem like it would make that big of a difference. But it, it does. So definitely worth investing in proper glassware. And we'll talk more about that another time, it sounds like. But we, do you remember that other absolutely unbelievable lunch five-hour lunch that we had at, yeah. uh, <laughs> right it's a good name to long lunches i mean i always love long lunches but I <laughs> it was such a dream so yonbo had made us this reservation at la siette champenoise which is one of the best restaurants in champagne and they definitely live up to the hype well, they definitely did. And one of the <laughs> one of the funniest moments during that lunch was when you were explaining to the waiter, well, you know, you had to explain that you were a vegan, but because that confused everyone. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> I remember you literally had to say, you know, I'm vegetarian, but I'm also allergic to dairy. And <laughs> I think he said to you, oh, but butter is okay, right? (laughs) Yes, there is nothing quite like being vegan in northern France. I will tell you that. The the lack of acceptance around the concept is is very pervasive, just typically received with absolute disbelief. And non-acceptance, really. The, the amount of times they continue to try to serve me fish or cheese or something is, uh, <laughs> is it requires a lot of persistence. Wow, that was an amazing lunch, though. And I wish that I had been more diligent about note-taking at the time because all I remember was that we had three bottles and then we had... <laughs> It was five hours. That's what I tell myself. We had three bottles and then we had something that was like cognac. And I'm sure you'll remember. I'm sure you know what it's called. I think it was Armagnac. Was it? I think so. Yeah, I I honestly, I don't remember. But I do remember walking into the garden and sitting there before lunch and enjoying our first bottle. I think we definitely ordered a bottle of Blanc de Noir with lunch. Yes. And then, you know what? We went home after lunch to take a nap. Yes. And then we got up. to dinner and drank more champagne. (laughs) So in case anyone had any doubt about whether or not you should visit Champagne, you need to (laughs) The answer is yes. (laughs) Yes, it was fantastic. And I think, you know, other than some of these really wonderful special places that we visited that we'll put in the notes, I mean, let's think about the main takeaways that we could share with people about champagne in general and about buying habits, anything like that, what would you say? 
Well, for me, some of the main takeaways from the trip were definitely that champagne doesn't have to be only a celebratory drink or something that you have as an aperitif, especially if you are willing to explore the aged champagnes, the Blanc de Blanc with some age or without on them. There are some gorgeous wines that can really hold their own next to food and are really wonderful. Like one of my favorites is actually Comte du Champagne by Tatanger. And that's fantastic with, well, you don't eat sushi or I guess maybe you vegan sushi. But anyway, I'm going on a tangent. <laughs> I love that, that one with Japanese food. Mm-hmm. So that was, so one is champagne can really hold its own against food. You just have to kind of explore the less common aged champagnes, Blanc de Blanc, Blanc de Noir. And then the other takeaway for me was really like how much it pays off to explore the small grower champagnes. Definitely. Which, so of course you can try going to your local wine shop and and getting some recommendations. That's always a great way to start. But once you kind of get a sense of what all of the different villages around Champagne are, I think there are 17 Grand Cru villages in Champagne. And I think after a while you start picking up on, oh, well, you know, I don't know that producer, but I recognize that particular village. And I've tried something before from there that I really like. And I think that's a great way to also like start to branch out and explore some of the grower champagnes just by locations that you discover liking over time. Definitely. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think as well, when you are, or if you start to feel nervous about exploring something because you don't have a reference point for it, or it feels less well-known, I think a reassuring thing that you can tell yourself is that a lot of these places wouldn't still exist if they weren't making high quality product. It's such a competitive area and it's so expensive to do business there and produce there that it's really hard to go wrong. It really is. Hmm, Yeah. I guess my last, my last thing that I'll just interject really quickly is to say that one of the things I learned on the trip was for some of the bigger brand names. So the ones that we see in all of the wine shops, I really didn't know that they sourced their grapes for the most part externally. And so what they're aiming for is really consistency year over year in the flavor profile. Mm -hmm. And I actually, for me, like that is not as interesting as a smaller grower that is really trying to express the terroir and the unique location of the vines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so true. And I think that is, to your point, something that's less well known among consumers is that there's a difference between a real agricultural product in which a producer and a winemaker takes what Mother Nature has given them on their estate from their own grapes and creates the best possible product champagne that they can using the resources available to them and their own skill versus a house who has access to vineyards from all over the region can create this, you know, to me, it's really a difference between a CPG product versus an agricultural product. And Mm. not that there's anything wrong with one or the other, but just that it really is a different experience. And your other point about champagne is not just for celebratory experiences is such a big 
takeaway for me. And one point that I really love to emphasize with friends, because I think this concept of marketing is so powerful that we consume these products in the ways and in the circumstances in which we're told to. And that is such a tragedy when you have something as wonderful and delicious as champagne that can be applied to so many other situations. And like you said, can be the perfect pairing for certain food. I mean, there's no reason to limit yourself to something wonderful just because the market tells you that that's what you're supposed to do. And I think especially now, again, we're in a global recession, pandemic, these champagne producers are really suffering right now. Their business is really, really not looking very good because people aren't buying celebratory items right now, right? People don't feel like celebrating that much right now. So their sales are really suffering. And if we don't support them, then it's going to be really problematic for a lot of these places. So I do feel like if there is ever a time to expand your palate and expand your application of champagne, it's now. <laughs> support these places so they can keep making the beautiful beautiful champagnes that they do and so that they don't have to no one who's been in the business for 12 generations wants to be the last generation who drives the business under right these places are trying really really hard and and i think consumers have a unique ability to exercise power with their dollar or with their pound if you're in the uk like you and yeah it's just something for everyone to keep in mind absolutely i think that's such a great point and on that note We'd love to hear feedback from everyone on what you enjoyed and if there are any topics that you think would be interesting to take a deeper dive into as we do more of these episodes. And I think we're going to do at least a couple of other episodes about places that we visited. You bet. Yeah, that's a great, great reminder. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope to hear from you all soon and provide you with another topic in the near future. See you next time.